0: God is wanting to do something of a powerful nature in our generation and I'm not just talking about God you know people rather seeking after signs and wonders because guess what there's another person that God tells us about in second second Th- Thessalonians 2 that is going to come on the scene and he too is going to do signs and wonders he's called the man of lawlessness some know him as the antichrist or what whatever name the beast but regardless this man of lawlessness is gonna use signs and wonders. It is not about seeking after signs and wonders. It is about seeking after the God of the signs and wonders, however he chooses to display his power. And it's up to us. We're gonna seek him and pray that he would do miraculous things. And above all of that, bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ, upending their lives, turning them around, changing that which is old and sin-rotted, and changing them completely. This this is what God specializes in. Well, God specializes in a lot of things, you understand. But So Lonnie Smith, I'm back on track now. That was like a five-minute tangent. <laughs> Lonnie Smith is preaching the gospel, and people are getting saved, and Chuck Smith is... Trying to help him along, and, and you know they would meet several times during the week, and Lonnie would preach sometimes, and Chuck Smith would pe- preach others. By the way, Chuck Smith, if you're not familiar with Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith was a very well-known pastor, but he started off, and and he was an older guy. He was a little bit younger than me, but he was an older guy with a very small church, and most of the members in that church left when he started reaching out to this hippie generation. Church, do, are you aware? that the hippie generation in many ways is similar to the woke generation. They are all looking for something that is so deeply, profoundly in touch with God. The the woke generation just generally does not know that, and they're looking in so many ways, and they're wanting to change so much of America. But the truth is, the answer is found only in Jesus Christ. That was another little tangent. The truth is, as Lonnie began ministering to people, God actually began healing people. And so many of them witnessed this, and many hundreds were coming to Christ when they, you know, I was brought to tears when they did their ocean water baptisms, and they truly have done so many of those, by the way. Uh, Chuck Smith, who was a part of Love Song, if you remember that group's name from the movie. Chuck Smith was one of the guys in the 70s that I followed a lot. I loved his music. And he did a song called Ocean Water Baptism by the Sea. And But when you actually see this scene, there's like hundreds all over, thousands maybe, all over the the beach and up on the the cliffs watching. And what a powerful scene to see these people. They're hungry for God. Church, we live in a generation And whether they're aware of it or not, they're hungry for Jesus Christ. He is the only one we're going to discover today that can truly answer their questions and bring the life that they're looking for. Unfortunately, though, for Lonnie Frisbee, he started off so well, but something happened in his life. And it became more and more, from his perspective, about him, and less and less about God, and he stumbled into pride, and he ended up stumbling into a number of sins. He ended up kind of going in different directions with ministry, even at one point left the ministry, divorced his wife. I mean, he stepped into back into his sinful lifestyle because he grew up uh, so abused, emotionally, physically abused, crushed in his spirit, and God rescued him out of that. But he lost his focus. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs 27, verse 21, it says this, the crucible for silver And the furnace for gold, but man is tested by the praise he receives. Are you aware that praise sifts you? It sifts your heart. It sifted John the Baptist's heart we're going to read about. It, it sifts every pastor's heart. It sifts everyone's heart. No one is immune, no one is uh, immune to the temptation of praise because it can start exalting something in you. It can become more, and your life can become more and more about you, and less and less, even as a Christian, less and less about God, about Jesus Christ. And that is when we begin to see a door opened. Before I begin reading from John, I want to read one more passage, and that would be Jesus' comment about John the Baptist a little bit later in John's ministry. He says this, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, and he's referring to John, among those born of women, there has not, there excuse me, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Mm. John the Baptist was a powerful man of God, and yet the place that God permitted him to have, God says that those who are in the new covenant, those who have the Spirit of God, not just with them. Jesus said to disciples, the Spirit is with you, but it, he shall be in you. Those who believe in Jesus Christ under the new covenant, the Spirit of God is in them. The Spirit, Jesus, desires to baptize people in his Spirit, not just so that they have some, not just so that they're regenerated, but so they're filled with the Spirit. And John even though he had the spirit, the privileges given to you through the new covenant are even greater than John. And and that's his measuring stick. He's not talking about like we're all doing greater things than John the Baptist. That's not his measuring stick. Greater with regard to the blessings and the grace of God and the spirit of God poured out upon us under the new covenant in Christ. But John the Baptist, he says, is the greatest of all of them. Just keep that in mind because as people come to John, John proves to be cut from a different cloth than someone like Lonnie, Lonnie Frisbee. And so many others, as they were receiving more and more prominent, excuse me, prominence, they began looking to themselves, and you don't see that about John the Baptist. All right, so let's do this. Let's look at this story of John the Baptist at the end of John 3, starting with verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Aon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, that was Jesus, understand. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. Can you sense almost the sense of injustice in this? Here's the new kid on the block, and everyone's going to him. John, what are you going to do about it? To John, excuse me, to this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Now understand this, that John is the friend of the bridegroom. Who are you? Who are you in this passage? See, you are the bride. Sorry, guys. Just the way it is. You are the bride. You are being introduced into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. See, that is a greater privilege than the friend of the bridegroom. The bride gets to marry the bridegroom. There is that deep covenantal relationship. John likens himself to the friend who gets to tell everybody about it. This is where he's coming from, see. And he says, this this friend is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. Don't get me wrong. The bride is full of joy. When the bridegroom comes, there's generally in Jewish tradition a trumpet that's blown. He Sometimes he he will call to her and she will have her bag ready. And when he does it, that means the place that he has prepared, the house that he's built, whatever it is, it's ready and he's ready to marry her. A little bit different in Jewish, tradi- Jewish tradition and how they were married at least 2,000 years ago, years ago than in America today, right? And so, the bride would be very reju- exuberant to hear the bridegroom's voice. But this is John's testimony, and he's full of joy. So he's communicating this to his disciples. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. John apparently at this point he's done his job he's reaching this place of transition and what would that be verse 30 he must become greater that is he must increase and i must become less i must decrease the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. See, that's John the Baptist. The one from heaven would be who? Would be Jesus. He, he was not just sent. See, John was sent from God, but he was from the earth. Jesus was sent from God, yes, but he came from heaven. He came from the Father. The Son did, that is. The one who comes from ab- from heaven is above all. He testifies what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. We learned about that in chapter one, by the way. Verse 33, the man who accepted it, that would be John, has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. And I would understand that is, God gives Jesus the spirit without limit he's going to have a vastly different ministry as a result of anyone, including the greatest one born of women, and that would be John. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life. Now listen, for, that is because, God's wrath remains on them. Father, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts. As we look into your words, we seek to apply them, open our eyes, that the church hear what the Spirit has to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you aware that from John's gospel, he records almost nothing of Jesus' ministry in Galilee? As a matter of fact, most of Jesus' ministry took place in Galilee and he only came down to Jerusalem or Judea generally when there was a feast and that happened three times a year. John chooses to focus on those occasions. And again, the gospel of, according to John is written with the synoptics in view and he's asking the questions, what can I write that would fill in what they have chosen not to focus on. It's no problem for Matthew, Mark, and Luke to focus on certain things, but that means they chose not to focus on certain other things. And John takes up that mantle, and he writes this gospel. And its focus is almost exclusively his ministry in Judea and Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the only parts of Jesus' ministry that happens in Galilee... And actually, nothing is recorded of Capernaum. It would be the beginning of John 2, the very end of John 4, and John chapter 6. Feeding the 5,000, that's in Galilee, and then Jesus crosses the, the lake, and then he ends up having a very important discussion that he records in the last part of chapter 6. But that's it. Just that little portion of chapter 2, that little portion of chapter 4, and chapter 6. And yet most of Jesus' ministry takes place in that region. John chooses to focus on other things. And, and this is one of them. Jesus is by the Jordan. He's baptizing people. And John is a little bit further north. John is baptizing people. And two people, a, Jew, a certain Jew... And one of John's disciples get into a discussion about ceremonial washing. What's the big deal about ceremonial washing? That is just, that's of the old covenants Jewish. You know, what does that have to do with Christianity? Let me tell you how it does because not only does the book of Hebrews talk about it, but John realizes baptism itself actually came from ceremonial washing. If you needed purification, you needed to generally wash your clothes and then wash yourself. You would bathe yourself. And there was symbolism in that. When a priest was about to minister before the Lord, he would have to bathe himself. These were certain requirements. If you touch something that was dead, it's not that that was sin, but the symbolism, God then says you need to generally, if your clothing touched, your clothing needs to be washed, and then so do you. People were to be washed. Priests were to be washed, and these were ceremonial type of washings. Baptism is an immersion in these waters to signify that washing away of sins, but also the burial of the old Mike Curtis or the old Cole or the old Julian or the old Torah buried and now a new Mike Curtis has been raised up in Christ. And so the symbolism within Christian baptism goes even further than John's. And so they're having this discussion and then the co- the question comes up, well, what about this Jesus fella? They don't even introduce his name. You know that guy. Jesus is that guy. He's that man. Yeah, you remember you, you, that guy, right? That's right. People you, John, you got to see this so many people are going to him now. And they're getting baptized. The idea is, John, your reputation, your ministry is being threatened here by this other guy. How does John respond to that? I tell you what, many leaders in America today would feel threatened by someone who comes along proclaiming the gospel, and people are then starting to follow what they're preaching because they're preaching about Jesus. And they would feel threatened, like, well, people are starting to follow this guy. Well, in this case, that guy was Jesus, but today, that may not necessarily be the case, but men, women, they can feel threatened. I'm losing something. I'm losing my popularity. My ranking is following. And even Christians get sucked up into this idea of men just desiring even craving men's praise and guess what guys it is not just leaders it is not just pastors it's not just those who stand on a stage it is every single one of us we get sifted by men's praise as a matter of fact even some of the well-known that I'm gonna mention here they trusted in Jesus secretly because of what others might think. John 5.44. I'm going to read that to you. John 5.44 says this. Jesus is talking to the Jews. He says, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet no Excuse me. Yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God. They craved the praise of men more than the accolades, more than the affirmation, more than the praise of God. Some of them, as a result, never chose to follow Jesus Christ because of this, because they would get kicked out of the synagogue and it would ruin their career. and then we we discover in John 12 in John 12 42 to 43 it says whoops, excuse me one more page, here we go. It says, yet at the same time, many even, now this is during Passion Week, many, of this, ma- many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. And at some point, their hearts were sifted And I don't know how that came out, but you know what? It it does say that they believed in Jesus. I'm going to let you know, it is possible as a Christian to fear man more than fear God. And when that happens, oh, you'll, you'll know it. If your eyes are open anyway, you'll know it. You'll start catering to that praise of men. You'll start compromising for that, those accolades. Francis Chan, he, he began to realize this was getting a hold in his life, and he realized there were times in which he would say things or write things to get people angry with him, to get people to just, oh, real, you said, that. it's not that what he said was wrong, but he knew that it would trigger something, and that's why he said it, and he realized, I am catering to men, to men. I'm wanting to stir something up here, and my focus, whether I stir something up or not, my focus has to be Jesus, regardless of what men think, regardless of what your boss thinks, regardless of the person who works next to you. How are you doing shining Jesus? How are you doing praying for the people that you work with? How are you doing as far as lifting up the name of Jesus and as you have opportunities sharing Christ? Now, you can do this even in the confines. Say, for example, uh, my oldest daughter, when she worked in a public school, specifically UCF, as a professor there or, or teacher, there, there were certain things she couldn't do, and so she did everything that she could do in order to spur conversations with her students about Jesus Christ. So she would set things up on her desk and people would look at them and they would ask her questions and now that was the open door to share the gospel. I'm going to tell you this, in every situation where you work, small or great, you can share Christ. I'm going to promise you that you can share Christ. But these men, these leaders, were always afraid of their jobs. They were always afraid of what other people would think or say or do to them. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, after Jesus had died on the cross, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus visited Jesus at night for a reason. We looked at two different reasons. One of them was so that no other leaders would know about it. At least they sought Jesus. John the Baptist freely declares, you can only receive what God has given you. He says it this way, a man can receive what is given him, can only receive what is given him from heaven. How you respond to what you have received, that's really the question. Pilate, as he's talking to Jesus, he says, Jesus, don't you realize that I have the power to put you to death? Don't you realize this? And Jesus looks at him and he just says, you don't have any power but what my father gives you. What Pilate chose to do with that power was completely in his lap. God even gave him an opportunity, a chance, by giving Pilate's wife a dream so that she came to him and said, careful with this guy. I just had a a dream. She cautions her husband. Pilate still catered to the Jews, catered to the whims of the people, and had Jesus crucified. He received an opportunity from God himself. And unlike John the Baptist, he chose to increase and chose for Jesus to decrease. Or at least that's what he thought he was doing, right? And I'm just going to say, you've heard me say this before, every plan of the devil is conniving as it seems, as undermining of the kingdom as it seems, can only play into the very plans and purposes of God. God will take every bad thing that has ever happened in your life, and if you can entrust those things to him, he's able to bring greater good from those. Even Satan's worst that he throws at you. You can take that truth and bank on it. See, that's why James chapter 1, verse 3 says, consider it pure joy, brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That is why, because even in our trials, we can trust him and God can take those and bring about the greater good so that even Satan's worst that he throws at you can turn around to be God's greatest. Remember the cross? the greatest evil perpetrated upon the face of this earth, God turned around to be the greatest good, the salvation of men. God can do that in your life. But see, in order for that to happen, I must decrease and he must increase. It says that all things are placed Into Jesus' hands. It says there in verse thirty-five: the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Everything, my friends, your life is not summed up in the job that you worked or how you were raised up from a mailboy to being the CEO of the company. And there are some of those stories around. It is not about the praises and the trophies that you have won or the accolades of man or how you were raised up from being poor to being rich. You can only receive what God has given you. How are you going to use it? And John is saying, here's what I'm going to do. It's Jesus time. It's not about John the Baptist. My part was simply this, to point people to Jesus. How well are you doing, church, pointing people to Jesus? See, your entire life is not about you. It is about him. It's about how you choose to live for him. God the Father loves his son and has given everything, including you, into his son's hands. And eventually, See, those things are in Jesus' hands, Jesus' power and authority. Eventually, his enemies will be under his feet. We're in his hands. The enemies will be under his feet. And there's plenty of scripture that speaks to this. But even death itself, when it's in God's time, will be under Jesus' feet. I don't want to be there, church. Church. I don't want to turn around one day so consumed in Mike Curtis that I turn away and life becomes about me and not about Jesus. And I've seen some of those people and they ruin their lives. They shipwreck their faith and they run as hard as they can away from God. And one day, should they not repent, they will be under his feet because that's where all of Jesus' enemies end up going. I want you to, I'm just going to close this out with the last few minutes. I want us to see those, look at those last two verses. The Father loves the Son and has given everything into his hands. We're going to learn in chapter 5 some of these things that God the Father has placed in his hands. One of them, Jesus has been called to be the judge for the Father. Now, he didn't come to the earth to judge. That's going to happen later. He came to the earth not to condemn, but to save. Now, don't get me wrong. He didn't walk up to people saying, you are going to hell and that's where you're going to end up. He had a little bit more faith, if you will, that people would repent, but he 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 was careful in how he pronounced judgment. He did say that if you continue in your sin, you likewise will perish. It is not judging someone or condemning someone to say if you continue in your sin, my friend, you too will likewise perish. And this text tells me why. Because, see, Jesus is the only one who can bring in, who can give life. He has that authority. It's been given to him from the Father. And the reason why he must do that is because we are bound under, this isn't very popular preaching, church. You're bound under the wrath of God. Outside of Christ, there is this thing called the wrath of God, it is not God throwing a temper tantrum and stomping his feet saying, you made me angry. It's nothing about that. Our understanding of wrath is so wrapped up in our fallen nature because we associate wrath with someone who's out of control. We associate wrath with a child's temper tantrum. God is not subject to a child's temper tantrum. He is not subject to sin. And so I'm sorry when you see wrath so often you don't see God's righteous wrath. You see man's fallen nature filled with wrath. And I'm just saying God's wrath is pure it is holy it is a response to man's sin you know when I was growing up and and even as a young Christian I tended to view God's love it says right there God loves the son it says back in chapter a little bit earlier in the same chapter God so loved the world tended to see God's wrath on one end of the spectrum, excuse me, God's love on one end of the spectrum, and God's wrath on the other end of the spectrum. Both of them were right, but sometimes God would move more towards his love, sometimes he would move more towards his wrath, and I began to realize that is so messed up thinking, because that shows wrath and anger almost as a dichotomy, as opposites, and they clearly are not. See, God is love. That's his nature. That's who he is. That's the essence of God, love. However, God is characterized by a number of things, like faithfulness and things like this, but he's characterized by holy, holy, holy out of that holiness, God brings justice. And out of that justice, there is judgment and the wrath of God poured out upon sin. So if the essence of God is love, I would have to say it this way. Love and justice or love and Uh, God's wrath, are not polar opposites by any means, but I want you to see it this way, that the nature of God being love, his wrath flows from his love. See, that is just so foreign thinking in, in, in our Western culture. But God's wrath is pure, it's just, and it's holy, and it springs from his love. I loved my children and for that reason only. And I tried not to allow my being upset for you know, because they said something and it hurt my little feel feels. Okay. I, I, disciplined them because I loved them and I did it out of hope. I realized you can't go, di- you can't keep lying. You keep lying. That is going to undermine your integrity later in life as a person. If lying is a part of your life, I'm going to tell you this right now. It will tank you. Get, get free from that, but you see, God. God's wrath is poured out upon sin. Ephesians two three it says, "All of us also lived among them." That is the, the 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 disobedient. All of us also lived among them, the disobedient at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts, like the rest. We were by nature objects of wrath. It says there in Romans chapter One, it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. How did God manifest his wrath? It tells us here in three different ways. Therefore, because they chose sin and to run from God and do life their way, therefore God gave them over to sinful desires. Because of this, God gave them over, it says later a few verses, to shameful Lusts. Just two verses later. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And it lists a number of things like slander and malice and being boastful and disobeying parents and being faithless and ruthless. And he says to the world, if you're going to. Live in your sin and refuse to repent of it. I'm going to give you over to it and you will become more and more lost. Loster in sin. And God will give them over to that. So church, what Jesus, what John, John the Baptist, what he's saying here is that our nature is to want to lift ourselves up. It's it's for me to be prominent. It's for me to receive the praise. And there is something, and there is no person on the face of this earth that is exempt from this. We desire men's affirmations. And it's not that that's wrong all the time. It's just that that provides such a temptation to seek after that and to compromise. Someone like Lonnie Frisbee, he gave into that. It destroyed his life. When we go into the workplace and we zip our lips and we never share Christ with anyone, I would suggest if you never share Christ with anyone, that you are probably falling prey to this temptation of men's praise or the opposite and you want to avoid men's judgment. As we go through life, as I I have gone, gone through life myself, I have realized Mike Curtis needs to die daily. It needs to be, my life needs to be less and less about me and what I want, and everything must be submitted to his will because Mike Curtis must decrease, and Jesus himself, the very focus of what my life and what all of our lives are about, he needs to be the one to increase. And if I miss that, I'm going to move into this direction, I'm going to move away from Christ, and we need to always keep in mind that it is Jesus. Everything is in his hands. When he becomes your everything, when we choose to follow him, there is life in that church. There is life. There's eternal life in that. There's the promise of this life. Look to the sun as he's lifted up, and you will receive life in his name. We're celebrating Pentecost this weekend. Jesus, he not only promises to give you life, but he promises to baptize you in his spirit and fill you with the power of that spirit because that is exactly what you need in this life. Every day in your workplace, you need the spirit to fill you so that you can be his mouthpiece, so that you can live for him, so that people can see Jesus in you and the way you live makes the teaching of Jesus attractive. That's not Mike Curtis that just invented that. That phrase, that's found in Titus too. That is our life ambition because our life is all about him. The greatest of men, John the Baptist, he got it. He got it and he stepped back. You better believe it. People are following after him and I, I can only imagine he felt so satisfied that he had done his job and that people were flocking to Jesus instead of him. How would you feel if that was you? Would you feel maybe a bit defensive? I'm lo- losing something here. See, John the Baptist's reputation, his sense of satisfaction, his sense of value was not wrapped up in you know how he was doing on social media and how many likes he got on his posts. It had nothing to do with that. It was all about Jesus. Church, can you stand with me? Father, I just pray right now, humble our hearts, give us the right focus that we need. So often we are we are seeking after so many things in this world, so many things, and it's not that they're all wrong. Too often, Lord, our goals are wrong. And it becomes so much about me. And Jesus is more like a footnote on the pages of our life. And I would just ask today, God, would you help us? Help us to make Jesus the passion of our life. Jesus is hes the consummate purpose and goal of everything that we do. May what John the Baptist said be the theme of our life. He must increase and I must decrease. God, just show every single one of us as we leave here tonight how we are to live that out this week. Jesus, how can I decrease? And how can you increase in my life? I just thank you, Father, that by trusting in you, you've given us life. It's changed us. We're free from the wrath to come because of your grace and your goodness. And so I just ask, Father, show us in the remaining days of our lives how we can live full tilt, 100% sold out for Jesus Christ and nothing short of that. Just help us, God. And may Jesus in the end be highly lifted up and exalted and by no means ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.